0: Me again, ESG Clarity's global deputy editor Natasha Turner, here to present another episode of ESG Out Loud. I hope you're all enjoying your summers. Let us know what sustainable activities you've been getting up to. In regulation, we've seen recommendations put forward to the ISSB, and as its consultation closes, and in the UK, the FCA and FRC have found inconsistencies in companies' TCFD reporting. Although I'm not sure this is really a surprise to anyone, to be honest. But in more sombre news, the summer has also brought with it the news of soaring profits at companies such as Shell, Centrica and BP, and the devastating effect this will have on people amid the cost of living crisis. Strangely, the industry has been quite quiet on this one, it seems. I don't know if that's just because of summer or because of the irrelevance with the sustainable investment side of the industry, but it'd be really interesting to hear more views on this. So perhaps fittingly, in today's episode, we're discussing social factors. In a minute, we'll be hearing from Simon Bond, Julia Varesco, Dan Kemp and Tim Cockrell from the Global Issues Summit on this. And finally, as always, we have another instalment of our diary chat with oceanographer Dr Emma Boland, where this time she tells me all about another project at Bath, the Smurfs project, which doesn't have anything to do with the little blue creatures. So please enjoy, stick around to the end, and uh, I hope you find this episode informative.
1: Yes, well, as she says, today we're going to be talking about social factors dominating the global narrative. I think it's fair to say that the S in ESG has historically gone in less attention than its G counterparts, um, but that really, we have seen a shift that's starting to change. Um, a lot of that is down to the coronavirus pandemic which shown a spotlight on health and safety in the workplace, mental health issues, racial injustices, and socioeconomic inequalities. Uh, Social impact investment hit $6.4 in 2020, an eightfold increase from £833 million in 2011, according to figures from Big Society Capital. And we've seen a similar spike in the wave of social bond issuance as well. But obviously, there's still a long way to go. One of the biggest challenges, and I'm sure something that we're going to get into today, is just how difficult it is to quantify social factors and social impact. Um, Because of this, many companies just don't know how to disclose this information, um, while others might be using this as an excuse to keep their cards close to their chest, as it were. Um, And as a result, this meant many investors simply don't know whether or not the companies that they hold in their portfolios have human rights, due diligence processes in place. All right. So with that, I'll kick off and introduce our panelists. So starting on the
2: left. Um, I'm Julia Vresco. I'm a senior analyst on the Pacific Asset Management Longevity and Social Change Fund. Um, as you can tell, we're a thematic fund, uh, the theme is longevity, so um, issues around uh, health span, lifespan, wealth span uh, are all really important to us, and uh, we're also an articulate fund.
3: Tim Cockerell, um, Ron Dartington, which is also the DFM for St. James Place. Um, I'm responsible for the integration of ESG responsible investing. Um, into around Artington, but also aligning that with what SJP are doing.
4: Simon Bond from Columbia Threadneedle. I'm the Executive Director of Responsible Investment Portfolio Management. But more importantly, um, I run our suite of social bond funds that were launched uh, some eight and a half years ago. Um, And they are obviously using the bond market in order to achieve benefits for society.
5: I'm Dan Kemp. I'm the CIO for... Morningstar's investment management business, and so importantly, I can't help you find a fund on direct. Uh, I can't deal with the dodgy nav in your, uh, in your fund database, um, but uh, what we do do is we run portfolios for clients of independent financial advisors, and within that, uh, I'm one of the managers for our ESG
1: strategies. Okay, great. Thank you all. Uh, firstly, I thought it might be helpful if we just unpack the S in ESG. Um, you know, this part of the industry is laden with jargon. So I think it helps if we're all sort of working from uh, the same starting point. So what does it mean to you? And what are sort of the biggest social issues that companies and investors should be thinking about right now?
2: So, um, you know, for us, um, we're a thematic fund, we look at longevity as a theme. And that has loads of components to it, like the demographic change, um, you know, inequality of uh, wealth among different age cohorts. So we, we look at um, the social pillar of ASG from a longevity lens because it um, raises and combines a lot of issues into one theme, such as, for example, um, you know, if you look at uh, income distribution of if you look at pension ports of women relative to men, when it comes to retirement, their pension ports tends to be, tend to be 30 to 40 percent smaller. Mm-hmm. So these kind of issues um, they need to be highlighted and addressed, and uh, there are ways of doing it um, uh, by focusing um, as active investors on um, such things like um, disclosure of. Uh, Pay gap by companies, uh, diversity in the workforce. We have made uh, social change our priority as a fund, partly because focusing on longevity means we already score really well on a number of environmental characteristics, we exclude whole industries uh, and sectors from um, our investments, Mm. because they're pollutive, so they're contradictory to um, living longer and healthier. Um, So then uh, the social pillar comes into effect because um, at the same time, for a lot of our companies, it's a material uh, metric. Um, for them, human capital um, is very important. We, we invest a lot in education, healthcare companies, financial um, services as well. And their human capital is really at the core. So that's where social um, change and the social pillar, pillar of ESG really becomes crucial.
1: Hmm.
3: Yeah, I think it's really wide ranging, you know, from the company level. All the way up as we saw in the slides at the beginning of the impact of one and a half or two degrees rise and what that does to a large or how it could impact a large number of the population and you can't address the environmental side without addressing society's issues and i do think you know it starts at the company but you've got to look at it in a much wider context too mm.
4: so we uh, we have a social partner and um, the big issue Um, And of course, given that we have a social partner partner like The Big Issue, we got them to define what social was, and they come up with eight areas of social outcome which we have to address with each and every bond in the portfolio. And it does go from shelter, if you like, social housing, health, education, financial inclusion, um, all the way down to more general infrastructure investment in transport, etc., which aids society generally. But I don't like the separation of E and S. Because actually, I think we've done that in the past. And what you end up doing is if you're focusing on purely environmental, such as when we launched the campaign for the Green Guild, if you're looking at environmental funding, actually, it does have social benefits as well. Because you might be investing in deprived areas of the country. You might be creating green collar jobs and you need that reporting back as well. So I think actually, increasingly, we're coming together. On those two concepts of the E and the S, mm. and one of the important campaigns that's been uh, that's going to be launched actually is this concept of the just transition, which was in, um, very very prevalent within the G7 Impact Task Force. And my fund, although it's called a social bond fund, is actually an impact fund. So I'm quite conscious of the fact that we need to focus on that word impact as well.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: Ah, oh, the joys of going forth. Uh Everything sensible has already been said, um, so I'm going to take a slightly different track and say that uh, actually, I think S is where a lot of the non-financial preferences come into into portfolios. So if you if you go back to when I started in this industry as a, as a specialist. Financial advisor in in the ESG space. We didn't call it ESG then. We called it ethical investing, uh, and th- things like tobacco and uh, uh, and alcohol and um, and, and gambling we were three of the things that people wanted to uh, to avoid. And there's really uh, that really gets people away from just financial analysis. Whereas when we think about uh, the the environmental risk or really the governance risk, you can actually uh, price a lot of that risk uh, that it has that financial component in terms of ESG risk, whether it's transition risk as we've been talking about, or um, or uh, adaptation risk. But you can price that risk. Whereas uh, in the social area, we see a lot of preferences being uh, being expressed, whether it's um, sort of social housing preferences or, or um, longevity preferences, that, that sort of thing. And so in in that scenario, I think it's it's useful to think about uh, the S as being one of the areas that really connects with the personal values of investors beyond those broader themes that we're seeing in the SG.
1: Okay, that's an interesting take. I mean, does anyone think that there are sort of financial risks involved with looking at the S component? Um, Is investing in companies that are supporting better social outcomes better for your portfolio in the long run?
5: So, so I wanted to laugh. I saying, I, I, I definitely think there are. you can know, okay. you, you definitely also <laughs> trace it to the financial side, right? Um, before someone tells me I'm an idiot, which is likely. Um no. but so, so definitely you can. There is a financial aspect, but there's also those those non-financial I aspects, which yeah. I think is uh, is is more clearly seen sometimes yeah. in the S yes side than others. I
1: would agree with that, um, but sort of. Looking at some of the financial risks, what sticks out in your mind as being sort of an obvious example of that? Well, I,
3: I think everybody will be aware of <clears throat> Boohoo and the, the trouble they got into,
1: hmm.
3: you know. And so you can't sometimes separate. I don't think the two. And I, you know, the way you look after your workforce as, you know, was the case here with Boohoo. I mean, it really had a major impact on them. And with social media the news spreads very quickly, particularly to the people who are buying uh, from Bogo So there is a very close relationship, I think, at times, between the, the, the S, um, however you want to look at that within the company, and their potential financial performance. Mm.
4: I had this very question with the Wall Street Journal who said to me, absolutely no question, there is no link between BSG." and financial performance, you need to prove to me that there is any link whatsoever. My answer was, ultimately, do you think that regulation legislation is behind the curve? They said, well, yes, we think it probably is, and particularly you know, if you compare the US with Europe. And I said, okay, would you rather be in a fund that benefited from that regulation and legislation that's to come, or one that's going to suffer because of that regulation? and legislation and even the wall street journal conceded that on that basis there might be a financial link between the two
2: and i, I would probably add as well it also depends on how you look at the direction of travel so you know things like uh, reputational damage if you have a powerful strong brand that you you know you want to preserve the value of and grow it then clearly you want to treat your like you said, workers' right, uh and so on and so on. But equally, you know, you need to look at um, kind of how the investor base is evolving. It's it, it's it's been highlighted in many different uh, surveys that millennials care a lot more about um, you know value-based investing uh, than some of the other age cohorts. So as they continue to accumulate wealth, of as wealth gets passed on to them, you know, companies need to recognize that uh, you know these will be their ultimate investors and stakeholders, and uh, they care about these issues. So um, I think it's impossible to ignore it. There are also different studies you can look at. You know, recently ESMA conducted a study which proved that, yes, ESG funds outperformed their non-ESG equivalents, adjusted Mm. for things like um, various biases, like large cap bias, developed market bias. So there is already also some proof there in the numbers that... um, Yes, uh, you know it's worth bearing those risks in mind because if you don't, then you run the risk of um, hurting your performance. If you're not focusing on corporate governance, on um, mm. other parts of the ESG, whichever way you define it, Sarah, mm. I. Think
5: I think I'd just pick up on on both this, those points as well. Thinking about the, the 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 pricing of that. So 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 you're right. If you're in a in a company that's. Benefiting from uh, that change in legislation, or if you're benefiting from a wave of capital that may come as people people get older, then uh, then yes, you can see tailwinds for those companies. But of course, it depends on how it's priced in, doesn't it? Whether that all that good news—I'm not saying it is being priced, in, but all that if that all that good news is priced in, uh, then that financial benefit may not be as obvious. And equally, there'll be times when the sentiment changes, and then you get great op- uh, great uh, financial returns as well as uh, there's opportunities for for, for the social return, so it's it's. I think that's that's where potentially the, the the preferences are different from the the financial aspect, because people could say, "I don't want to invest in tobacco companies. I don't care how cheap they are." Uh, whereas uh, some of the things that you've been talking about, there's that that great link there between financial performance and um, and social performance.
1: Well, I think this sort of um, gives way to um, another debate, which is you know. I think people have throughout ESG, really, which is what's the best um, method of sort of tackling these issues? Is it stewardship, looking at impact metrics, or an exclusionary approach? Is it a combination? What are your thoughts on that? (laughs) Anyone who wants it? How about you, Simon?
4: I I run an impact fund. So whilst a lot of the industry is based on negative exclusion, Mm. um, that's not good enough for us. We want to actually positively impact society, so ours is positive inclusion biased. Now, of course, we have minimum status, Of course, we don't buy tobacco companies now, and, and arms manufacturers, etc. But what we're focused on is the most socially intense investments that we can get to try and optimise what we would call the social alpha, outperforming by the social characteristics within the fund. And we talk about impact. So whilst there are, there is an impact within. Your own controllers, management, your employment practices, your governance, your um, your environmental policies, etc. What we're really looking at is the effect of the companies that we invest in on society. So that's wider communities, societies, economies, etc. And that's outside of the company itself. That's the externalities that we're looking at. Um, and then we would look for the most impactful um, social investments in that criteria in the conventional market that is the institutional bond market, so we are limited nevertheless in our um, in our ability to access those companies. So what we do is engagement, engagement, engagement. As bondholders, we can't have a vote, we don't own the company, mm. but we can engage and we can influence, and indeed we can influence the type of issues that come to the market and the type of issues that we want to put in the fund. Okay, great. Um, I'd
2: say it's pretty similar for us, although we're not impact investors, we um, ESG is very much integrated into every stage of our investment process. Um, so, we, uh, you know, we do focus on engagement. We're in a privileged position where we conduct hundreds of meetings sometimes with over the period of a year with corporates, uh, senior management, and and we can really, you know, sit down with them, having done the research, having understood where they where they are today and where they're aiming to get to, and we can have a really um, informed conversation with them. Occasionally, we will have a meeting with a company that's not even in our portfolio, but you know, it's it's still raising these issues, letting the corporates know that someone is tracking this, trying to, you know, stay on top of it, and um, highlighting best practices to them, which we we'll come across in uh, various sectors. That ongoing conversation, I think, is really important, um, especially as you know, the social taxonomy is, is still work in, work in progress. So we can, mm. we just need to do our best with the tools we have at hand, um, and we do it with, you know, through um, proxy voting as well. So we use um, ISS uh, SRI Alliance proxy voting service, which is the one most um, rigorous in the sense that it looks not just at the financial metrics and financial. Um, uh, Uh, financial criteria, but also at the social implications uh, from our voting decisions. Um, I can give you an example. We had um, a company in our offices the other day, we had a CEO of uh, Glaxo, um, Dame Emma Wormsley and uh, this is a company that's already doing really well on a lot of um, diversity metrics that we can measure and track. And, uh, you know, we we still talked about uh, what what is the agenda then for a company that's already achieved great uh, diversity uh, when it comes to board representation, management, and just general um, diversity in the workforce. And we talk about things like additional, like very uh, qualitative sometimes topics like uh, the introduction of... um, um, benefits and programs to help uh, women through menopause uh, at work. Or, you know, we we'll, we'll dive into how um, her uh, compensation is linked to uh, ESG and social metric targets that have been set for them. So it can get very um, kind of difficult to measure what we have achieved, but we've had a really in-depth discussion and we follow up on it uh, and we can track it uh, over the years as long-term investors as well. So we can really invest time and um, uh, research into having that conversation and carrying it on. Mm-hmm.
3: That's really <clears throat> interesting because we we use funds and obviously we get clients who will come to us and they will ask if we can build a portfolio with biases towards um, gender diversity, inclusion, etc. Which is really really difficult to do. Mm-hmm. You know, we're still obviously starting looking at a financial return to start with, but what we don't get from the fund. Providers is any form of analysis or metric around that. Um, so it, it, you're you're looking at it, but we're not, you know, we're not seeing it on the fun side. I know what Dan thinks. I
5: know a good data provider. <laughs> um, <the laughs> anyway, I'll leave the advert there. Yeah. So I think um, uh, again going forth, the, the, the one thing that that strikes me as I, I think about this that is that it really depends on what you're trying to achieve for your client, and so if uh you're you're trying to um, uh, reduce the level of uh, ESG risk in in the the portfolio then uh, engagement is a great way to do that if you can if you can work with companies to reduce that that risk uh, then you're going to increase the intrinsic value of those businesses and by doing that uh, then you can improve the financial financial returns but equally if you're dealing with clients who just have a really strong preference for I do not want to invest in tobacco mm-hmm. uh, then uh, you have to do that by exclusion uh, and uh, as you said even even with with um, with funds that invest in impact I mean you don't have tobacco companies so there's not a lot of exclusion there um, anyway so it's that's you you can do it uh, you can do it
4: that way I would say, mm-hmm. I'd say one other thing though mm-hmm. alcohol um, people mm-hmm. always ask me that's very social isn't it alcohol mm-hmm. actually there's nothing wrong with the product there's nothing wrong with alcohol The problem for society is the abuse of the product, which Mm -hmm. is a massive problem for society. And we did engage with Carlsberg, Mm -hmm. and Carlsberg had a target to make um, the effect of their product on society zero by a certain date. Mm -hmm. So we were very interested to find out what that was. Now, as it turns Mm -hmm. out, that wasn't quite as strong as it sounded, because all they were doing (laughs) was providing a non-alcoholic alternative wherever they provided alcohol. And that is not going to affect the abuse of their product and the effect it has on society. But we did engage. Yep. We did interact with yep. them, the heat not burn area of the of the tobacco companies and the vaping. You know, Yes, we wouldn't invest. We're not convinced. And uh, there are health problems. But we still engage. You don't exclude whole sectors of the economy. You mm. engage with them, but you don't necessarily invest in them. You, you right.
5: see, I, so I, I disagree with, with that in, in, in one particular case, which is... Where the client has the, the preference, you know, when we're building portfolios for for clients, and and Tim, dis, you know, disagree with this if you, if, if you don't if you don't agree, obviously. But the um, people, let's say, with religious preferences, you know, may uh, may decide that actually alcohol is completely. Um, other other things may be completely off the table, and so so in that situation, the only way that you can serve them is, is through um, an exclusion product. But you're, but it, it makes sense. Right
4: Classification, but from different exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Different
5: <laughs> no,
3: I yeah. I agree with you. it's a client preference mm. in the case of alcohol. You know, and what we find is quite often people say, I don't want any alcohol manufacturers, which is fine. You mm. can, you know, that's not too tricky. But then it's kind of drilling down to the next level. Do you want to exclude the retailers? Mm. Do you want to exclude the leisure industry and the entertainment industry? And actually, it's, it's, it's quite an interesting debate to have mm. because you have to build pragmatic, practical portfolios. You can't build a perfect portfolio. Mm. And that does enable a discussion, but very much a client preference from our point of view. And that goes, I mean, also with tobacco as well, um, and various other. Defense is another interesting area. It's Mm -hmm. come back center stage, and people looking at it as a defensive industry rather than offensive.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I I think you all have touched on this um, a couple times already, but one of the challenges with looking at social impact and social factors in portfolios is that we don't really have standardized metrics as such. Uh, Julia, you mentioned that the um, EU was looking at creating a social taxonomy, but it's all a bit vague at the moment. So how can we, how do investors, you know, how can we resolve that and how can we help the end client sort of understand that social investing link better?
4: We've had to do it ourselves.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
4: I think that possibly is one of the answers. Mm-hmm. Um, the difficulty we're doing it yourself, and what, what we're doing is we're focusing on three things, basically. We're looking at additionality, so a bit additional benefits for society. We're looking at a focus on deprivation, so deprived communities within society, underserved communities, if you like, and then the quality of impact reporting, because a part of impact, you need to be able to prove it. Mm-hmm. But we have to come up with our own social intensity rating as a result of all that. The difficulty then in having a proprietary metric like that is how do you compare us with other asset classes in the firm and outside the firm with other um, with other managers? So what we will then do is we will map each and every bond in the portfolio to the common language of sustainability, the SDGs, and increasingly the common language of impact management, uh, which is the impact management project. And they classify A, act to avoid harm, B, benefit stakeholders, C, contribute to solutions. So we try and translate what we do which is proprietary and internal into something that you can then find is comparable. But ultimately we don't have anything out there in the world currently at least that would be comparable to let's say a carbon metric equivalent.
3: I think a lot of clients aren't aware of a lot of the connections. Mm. You know, I think you know a lot of if you broaden the picture out a lot of social issues are down the supply chain. Um and I would so the majority of the clients we see aren't focused on that. Those that come to us with a particular social uh, request are very switched on to it, and that where it tends to be an individual discussion with them. But again, my point about you can't build a perfect portfolio. There are certain investments out there, like the one Simon runs, and you know you've got social housing investment companies you can you can use, which are, are very good and have a very direct impact. Um, So I think you know it's such a broad picture. um, There's a lot of education I also think needed as to the impact of things that you know happen down that supply chain.
2: Um, Yes I mean I've I've mentioned some of the um, ways we tried to work around it before but the metrics we try to look at are the ones which are quantifiable they're not always available so then it becomes about asking the companies to fill in the gaps, uh, you know, scrutinizing why you're not disclosing this data when someone else does. Um, And then just, I guess, elevating why these metrics are even important, because, you know, just focusing on um, gender diversity and equality uh, may seem like quite a simplistic way of doing it, but actually there are multiple studies to show that uh, workplaces which um, promote inclusivity which are diverse, tend to lead to positive outcomes along innovation, uh, uh, retention of the workforce, uh, talent attraction, and uh, productivity, less absenteeism, you know, those kind of factors. So it does also feed into... um, better financial performance across uh, some uh, service conducted by uh, international labor organization, for example. So it's about elevating these issues. Uh, We also do a little bit of DIY. We we have our own proprietary uh, scoring framework for um, ESG. We use um, a data provider uh, which um, uses AI um, and we can map um, data from thousands of sources so not just from what the you know the company's sustainability report but uh, news uh, legal filings and so on and uh, that data can then be mapped to the 26 uh, SASB categories and they form ES and G components for scores and we can see where for example the portfolio um it uh, ranks relative to the wider universe in terms of which percentile, how many leaders, laggards uh, we have in the portfolio. So um, we also have this proprietary um, scoring uh, tool and methodology. Um, yeah.
1: And how have you noticed a change in companies' willingness to engage and sort of answer these questions and disclose this information?
2: I think so, yes. I mean, I I think the one area where there's still not enough um, commitment is just linking it all into executive pay, right? Um, (laughs) But it it will get there. Mm -hmm. Um, And certainly it's, you know, there are best-in-class operators that set the agenda up and then, you you know, you can... There are companies where you come across very well-thought-out processes and data and uh, you can take that as your kind of map and uh, look for similar disclosure with others and the more you do it the more eventually you know even if they don't give you the data if they give you the thinking process around um you know aims around the measure you're talking about then it's still it's still very informative to see whether the company is really behind or if they're really thinking ahead and trying to drive change It's about the pace of change. It's not about uh, so much, you know, how outstanding they are already. It's about continuous change. All right. Well,
1: um, you know, I was thinking as well, um, we've seen, I guess, post-COVID, we saw the the so-called great resignation. You know, we've got tighter labor markets, particularly in the U.S. So I'm wondering what how that's going to change the discussion around workers' rights, Um, discussions around minimum wage, flexible working, maternity, paternity leave. Any thoughts on that?
4: One of the things that we use for engagement is something that companies aren't expecting. We are asking companies. And that doesn't mean companies. Actually, that's issuing entities. I'll give give an example of University College London issued a bond. Um, What we asked them about their employment practices was was about their vulnerable workers. How did you treat your catering staff, your maintenance staff, your cleaning staff? They aren't expecting those questions. Mm. Actually, in that case, they had some very good answers. The catering was actually outsourced. We asked them about the terms of the outsourcing contract. They came back and said, actually, those terms would be exactly the same as those that were directly employed by us. How did you treat your staff during the lockdown period? Did you furlough employees? In fact, they did, but they topped up the extra 20%. These are questions that when companies... They're doing the thing right. They are very willing to answer those questions, but they don't think it's necessarily important enough to put it in a sustainability report. Mm. But the engagement is the absolute crucial element in this. If you want to find out about the real employment practices that you're facing, um, for a bond investor at least, you have one opportunity, and that tends to be the best opportunities when they want something, uh, when they want money, and that tends to be the new issue process. But actually, that's the period where, as a bondholder, you can actually have the issuing entity borrow money from you and spend that money in society. And that's what we analyse, the effect of that money being spent in society. When we we buy a secondary issue, we talk about outcomes. When we buy a primary issue, we talk about impact. Mm.
1: Um, And Simon, what are some of the big challenges issuers are facing at the moment? I I believe there are pretty strict requirements, aren't there, around... um, sort of selecting social projects um, to be able to... to uh... Well,
4: there are. I'm on the ICNA subcommittee for the social uh, Green Social Bond Principles. Mm-hmm. What we were trying to encourage a couple of years ago with the Impact Reporting subgroup was the issuance of gender bonds.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, and there has been a gender bond issued this year from the Asian Development Bank. That's promoting women in the workplace and also women-led businesses through SME lending, etc., micro and SME lending. But one of the questions was why are the companies or in fact the entities, not issuing gender bonds. We've had QBE in Australia have a gender bond, we've had IFC in Canadian dollars have issued, the Asian Development Bank in Euros have issued. Why are European entities not promoting these particular aspects? Why are they not financing these particular areas and focusing on those disparities? Um, So that's a, a lot of work that we've got to do to try and encourage that type of issuance. Equally with the bond market, you've also got the opportunity to be much more targeted, to actually... Focus on a gender bond from a particular issuing entity. And the great example, I suppose, is we are facing another social crisis in Europe, the war in Ukraine, the consequences of which are refugees. And the Council of Europe Development Bank, who was set up after the last war in order to respond to the then-refugee crisis, have issued a social bond. And that social bond is to get money towards the requirements of countries that are taking in those refugees, that effectively don't have a role from Felix, let me call it a refugee bond, but between you and I, it is a refugee bond because that's what the the clear and present danger for society is. And we have within the bond market the ability to use the use of proceeds through the structure of the bonds to deliver for those particular refugee causes.
1: All right. Well, I'm going to start integrating some questions. Um, We have had one come in. What is the minimum investment you think you need to have uh, so the companies start to listen to you? And how do you team up with other investors? Anyone feel like taking that? Oh.
2: I'm not sure. Oh. <laughs> <You're> not, <laughs> not sure. You need to have a minimum investment. I mean, you just uh, to be taken seriously, yeah. Well, you, you you need to obviously have the. If if you know if you are, you know an investor that uh, knows the space, understands multiple issues the company is faced with, not just, you know, we don't speak with our companies just on ESG issues. We, we're quite well informed and can have a, an in-depth conversation on a multitude of operational issues and so on. And I think companies take that, um, you know, very positively. And obviously it's, it's great then that the conversation becomes about financial and non-financial metrics. Um, I, I can't really a number to the minimum investment you need to have to have um the conversation at least about it an engaged conversation
3: mm. yeah it's interesting i mean sjp and working in conjunction with another large asset manager who probably between the two have got something like 300 billion plus and they do a lot of engagement work but they brought those two uh, businesses together to use the combined shareholder weight and cloud to uh start engagement in a whole raft of different areas. But again, it's focused, you, you clearly, uh, SJP have got a lot of underlying investments, so you have to focus in on those areas that uh, are a particular concern for the company or for the clients.
4: And collaborating with other investors, which is your other part of your question, there are industry bodies, the Investment Association, the Impact Investing Institute, I'm on the Advisory Council for that, um, There are there's um, Jim in terms of the impact space, um, there are lots of different industry bodies that you can work through. To if you have a if you have a strong voice within those bodies, you can actually use the weight of other managers AUM as well, and that is a really powerful voice. You don't necessarily need to be um, a, a large scale AUM player. You just need to have great ideas, great influence within those bodies. You can have great influence through that particular aspect.
5: Mm. I think so. Engine number one is probably a great example of, of that, where um, they uh, they wanted to affect change at Exxon uh, and got together the big industry players, BlackRock and, and others, to mm. to support them uh, in the uh, in the work they were doing. So I think that's you're absolutely right, Simon. It's about The importance of of collaboration and working together, which is we heard in the last panel as well. You know, when it comes the environment is true. When it comes to social issues, it's true as well. We
4: can we can get there much more easily together.
5: And we can individually. And I
4: should also say, it's not the number of meetings you have with companies. Don't let people tell you that we've had fifty meetings last month. It's the influence that you can have through those meetings that you should be looking for. Mm. It's the change you can exert through that influence that you should be looking for. Mm. The fact that you've ticked a box and met 50 companies in the last month Mm. means nothing if you've had no influence over them.
3: Mm. And that influence can take a long time. Mm. Yeah. 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 I know, again, from the work SJP do, the typical time frame is around three years. And if at the end of the three years you haven't got the result you want or close to it, then maybe it's time to move on.
4: Yeah, we did that with the, the campaign for the Green Gilt, launched in May 2019, and the Green Guild well, it's two years, 20, came out in 2021. But we worked with the Impact Investing Institute, the Green Finance Institute, the Grantham Institute, uh, the London School of Economics. We got together with those entities, uh, and indeed latterly with the Investment Association when we were really putting the terms of that particular Green Gilt issue. And by the way, it's a Green guilt, but it reports on social co-benefits as well because my influence obviously had some bearing on on that as well.
1: And maybe just to wrap up, um, obviously, it's a tricky market environment out there right now. We're dealing with rising inflation, a cost of living squeeze. How do you think that's going to impact the conversation around social factors? I think there were some concerns initially that post-COVID, as life kind of returned to normal, some of those issues might, you know, be overshadowed once again by environmental concerns?
4: I think there are a lot of social problems out there um, that have been exacerbated by COVID, particularly, mm-hmm. and particularly by this, the state of the economies at the moment. I did live through 1973. I was a child, admittedly, but I do remember the, the lights going off, the three-day week, um, those kind of aspects. It, it feels a lot like those sorts of issues, and that, those are social issues. If you have not got the power to cook your food, to heat your house, to see to do your homework, I was doing homework by candlelight, etc. Those are social issues. And it may be actually that the environmental necessity of absolutely moving over to net zero, absolutely cutting off all of oil and gas and all the rest of it actually has negative social consequences. Because if that means you don't have the power to keep industry running, the power to actually be able to and like, like like your, uh, your house, etc., that is a negative social consequence. Yes. And so there are positives and negatives of the environmental argument and we need to make sure, of course, that the cost of getting to net zero by 2050 is not borne by those in society least able to afford it. So that's a social aspect that needs to come into the environmental. And that's why I
3: think the two need to come together a lot more. Mm. Yeah, the transition, how that is handled is absolutely... Critical. Um, And it's not just in the UK, it's across the world. Um, But I think to the question about the current environment, inflation, interest rates, um, yeah, I think it's going to have a big social impact. I think it will be right up there in the news headlines for quite a long time. I don't think we've begun to feel it yet.
5: Just take a slightly different track as well in saying um, that I hope that A, investors remember why they own social funds or environmental funds or any type of ESG fund uh, through this period. We, we know that uh, there's typically in the, in the equity space there's more exposure to uh, more expensive growth style companies in um in social and in the environmental space and so uh in in the environment we're in at the moment where people are reassessing the valuations they're placing on on growth uh then you can see a situation where clients going back to their advisor their portfolio manager and saying well remind me again why i've why i've got this i thought i was going to to make money and uh, meet my values and so i think that the the pressure is actually on the on the porf- uh, the portfolio mentioned the um ultimately the, the advisor to help those clients think long term mm-hmm. to continue to focus on the sort of areas that, w- that we've been talking about uh, and get through uh this this period of performance because what we saw in 2001 uh, is that a lot of people have put money into ethical funds which were really small cap tech funds, mm-hmm.
1: uh,
5: and then reassessed that and, and got out at probably the wrong, the wrong time in the early part of the century. So so I think it's it's not just the, the pressure uh, that we feel as uh, as portfolio managers, or even the, the pressure that people are going through um, in this in, in, environment, as Simon said, it's, it's appalling, but it's also the pressure on the advisors to help their clients
3: through. i just
2: maybe um, highlight that you know one of the components of inflation, especially you know, that we're seeing in the United States, for example, comes from the labor market. Mm. So I think, um, you know, as it feeds into that, I think companies will increasingly realize that uh, human capital is important and, um, um, you know, there'll be, also because of the cost of living crisis, there'll be an ongoing debate about whether companies pay a minimum wage or a living wage. So it's it's just something that will stay on the agenda, I think, as a result uh, for a long period of time.
1: Great. Well, thank you all so much um, for participating today. It's a great discussion.
0: Okay, so tell us about the other project then, the, the Smurfs project.
6: Oh yes, yeah, so this is an even better argument uh, acronym, sorry, Smurfs. So um, I have to look at this up because I can never remember it. It's um it means it stands for securing a multidisciplinary understanding and prediction of hiatus and surge events. Wow. So that's another mouthful. So this is another project that was cross-disciplinary team from lots of different UK research institutes. Um, and so the background of the project, the project came about because about five to ten years ago, um, there was some discussion in climate science and in the media about a possible slowdown in global warming that was called the hiatus, or well, I put that in air quotes, the so-called hiatus. Mm-hmm. So. Nowadays, we kind of understand as climate we understand as climate scientists that the world did continue to warm, The more warming went into the ocean, so the ocean started to warm a bit more, and the atmosphere slowed down in its warming a bit. But the overall, both continued to warm, um, so there wasn't a hiatus as such. But that kind of that um, highlighted the fact that we're still kind of trying to understand as climate scientists what makes those changes so why does the ocean sometimes warm faster and the atmosphere w- slow down in its warming or and vice versa why does the atmosphere sometimes start to speed up its warming and the and the ocean slow down so we need to really understand better what causes those sw- slight swings and where the warm where the heat goes basically so that was the aim of this project was to Um, look at this from a multidisciplinary angle and see if we can improve our understanding of what changes those things. So basically we're talking about how on many decades, the rate of warming in the ocean atmosphere changes. So I was involved from an ocean perspective, obviously. So to try and understand, to look in a a model at how the ocean, uh, the warming of the ocean changes over many, many decades. And the particular theory I was looking at was to do with aerosols. So uh, an aerosol is a solid particle floating in the atmosphere. Um, so one of the so most aerosols in the atmosphere come from natural sources. So it's mostly dust and sea salt that the wind blows up. So you might remember a few weeks ago in the UK, we had a rainstorm that brought down a whole load of Saharan dust. And everything was cu- everybody's cars and bins were covered with this orange dust in the morning. So that's a natural aerosol. That was the wind blowing up dust and carrying it in the atmosphere. So most of the aerosols in the atmosphere are natural. But there are uh, um, about 10% are man-made. So these are things like um, sulfur dioxide and nitrates that are produced when we burn fossil fuels, uh, and other things like black carbon that are, come from burning wood and coal. Um, so those are the what we call man-made aerosols. And we think that man-made aerosols and the changing amount of man-made aerosols in the, in the atmosphere, that's one of the culprits, that's one of the kind of theories for how that for changing how much heat goes into the ocean and atmosphere, how changing that amount of um, global warming on a decadal scale, on lot on many decades, because that kind of thing ch- has been changing over the last few decades. The amounts of man-made aerosols going into the atmosphere has changed a lot over the past decades as people's fuel sources have changed, and it's changed where it's been coming from in the world. Right. So it's, it's a bit of a, that's a long background. So basically, my uh, my project was saying let's take a climate model and change the amount of man-made aerosols that we're putting into it. We'll have one model that has very little man-made aerosols, and then another model that has. Far too, far more, our man-made aerosols than we think is realistic, and we'll see how the what the ocean looks like. So these t- aerosols, typically, you can imagine them floating in the atmosphere. They typically block the incoming sun a little bit, so they cool the atmosphere. So they um, often act to slightly counteract the uh, effects of carbon dioxide. So carbon dioxide, as we know, is a greenhouse gas, warms the atmosphere, and these aerosols typically. Uh, cool the atmosphere but it's not quite so simple because they uh, there's lots of interactions with diff- other different things going on they happen it depends exactly where those aerosols are so my part of the project was just looking at how that ocean warming de- happened changes over the co- course of many decades and we did find that as we suspected the amount of aerosols in the atmosphere does change how the ocean warms over many decades. So that if you have very few um, aerosols, then the ocean warms more strongly. And if you have more aerosols in the atmosphere, it relatively cools that. And also the ocean doesn't warm quite as much. But there's some um, interesting details in there, but um that's probably more tech <laughs> too mm-hmm. too technical. But the headline was that it, as expected, the aerosols can um change how fast the ocean warms. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. So, and 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 then, therefore, you need to look at that hiatus, I guess, in that longer time period, right? To see, yeah,
6: it's an unprecedented. It's something we've seen before, and you kind of also felt very opportunistic. The people who were jumping on it to say, "Ah, oh, there's no more climate change," were the kind of people you expect who've always been, you know, slight deniers of the climate change science. So when you can kind of detect an ulterior motive you don't really i mean yeah also you also learn to take the kind of um exaggerations of the headlines with a pinch of salt it's never quite as serious as people would like you to uh the media would like to make it sometimes yeah although sometimes they don't make it as serious as it is conversely
0: (laughs) find us on soundcloud or itunes by searching for esg out loud